0: Welcome to our seventh episode of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. I am the author of the book, and Pastor Peter Hagen is the editor of the book. So what we're going to be talking about today is page 43 in the book, Luther's Warning. And before I get into... the introduction to that chapter, I'm going to give all of you the reasoning why this chapter is so important and the impetus for it. So back in 2020, in the fall, when we were coming back to school, because remember in 2020, most of our schools were closed down for the rest of the spring through the summer, except being online. Then we came back in person in the fall there were mask mandates and so forth in most schools. And, you know, I didn't do that and I resisted. And there was a called worker that uh, called me not Lutheran for resisting. He became very red in his face and so forth. And I hadn't read Luther's warning to my dear German people, uh, but it was impetus to study it because I had already been assigned to read and write a paper for pastor's conference on the Magdeburg Confession. But when we get to the Magdeburg Confession in the next chapter of the book, it cites that Luther's warning to my dear German people, that letter was a lot of the input for the Magdeburg Confession. And if I would have been that knowledgeable in the meeting, I was well, uh, I'm afraid if you're not calling me, if you're calling me not Lutheran, then that's what you would have been calling Luther. Because Luther uh, calls for resistance of the government. So what do you know about, what did you know about <laughs> Luther's letter before the book, Peter?
1: Oh boy, I'm uh, I'm glad that I read the book because my recollection of it was that, okay, I think I had learned about this or heard about this during church history class, but all the details and the setting and the context was um, was, you know, had evaporated from my brain at some point. And my recollection of it was was almost nothing. And reviewing it, it's like, oh, this, this makes a lot of sense. And some of this rings a bell. And most of all, um, you know, this is, you know, thinking about well, why is this chapter in the book? Um, this is one of the reasons why we, why we study church history. Um, not just to learn what happened previously, but to see their application of what Scripture says, as well as their scriptural reasoning behind it. Um, and so the, it was very insightful for me, um, that, and then the, the Magdeburg confession, I must've missed that day in class. Um, I know that we talked about it. (laughs) Okay. Um, and so that one in the next chapter is, uh, is even further outside of my, uh, wheelhouse, so to speak.
0: So let's get into this chapter. Then I'll read the introduction in the 1960s television series lost in space, the robot acts as a surrogate guardian to young Will Robinson as the Robinson family is stranded on a planet. When the youth is unaware of an impending threat, the robot waves his arms around warning, danger, Will Robinson, danger. And danger is a klaxon call warning of impending danger. And that's what Luther's letter of my my dear Luther's warning to my dear German people. That's the impending danger of uh, imperial forces and papal forces joining together against the Lutherans. Uh, so I, I also wanted to read, this is a longer section from from the letter, but it's it starts everything out and sets it up. So Luther writes, But since I am the prophet of the German, for this haughty title, I will henceforth have to assign to myself to please and oblige my papists and asses. That's Luther's word. I didn't say that. It is fitting that I, as a faithful teacher, warn my dear Germans against the harm and danger, threatening them and impart Christian instruction to them regarding their conduct in the event that the emperor, at the instigation of his devils, the papists, issues a call to arms against the princes and cities on our side. It is not that I worry that his imperial majesty will listen to such spiteful people and initiate such an unjust war but I do not want to neglect my duty. I want to keep my conscience clean, unsullied at all events. I would much rather compose a superfluous and unnecessary admonition and warning and impart needless instruction than to neglect my duty and then find if things go contrary to my expectations that I am too late and have no other consolation than the words non putasam which means I did not intend this. The sages suggest making provision for things, even if everything is secure. How much less may we trust any wind and weather, no matter how pleasant it may appear in these difficult times when the papists regarding uh, raging provokes God's wrath so terribly. Moreover, in Romans 12, Paul commands those who preside over others to look out for them. So, Peter, what is Luther getting at there in that introduction to his to his
1: letter? Um, he's, he's basically looking for a fail safe option. He, you know, there's part of him that sits back and says, um, it's probably not going to happen. You know, that's what he says toward the end. Um, it's just like the weather. Maybe we could just plan for a sunny day all the time, but in the event that the emperor does something and oversteps his responsibilities to God as the emperor of the German peoples, um, then Luther says, that's what, that's what prompted me to write this, uh, this letter and this, this diatribe, um, this statement, um, so that if there is an event where the emperor is, um, is going to be harming us, then we're prepared and we all know how to respond. Yeah,
0: he's really saying at the end of that portion, I'd rather not write this, but it'd be better that I write it and warn everyone and not need it, than to not write it and then say later on, oh, I did not attend this and say, oh, shoot, I should have written that and warned you. So it's, yeah. it's better to be prepared. And that's his point. It's better to be prepared and then not use it It's the same way that we might be preppers and so forth. So my wife and I, you know, we have our, our vegetable garden with like the eight vegetables that I will eat and the, <laughs> the fruit trees that we have, our little orchard and then we've done a lot of canning and so forth. We, we're going to be raising a pig this year. We've got chickens and and so forth. We're, we're not all the way preppers, but we will have our own canned goods and so forth. Uh, we've even talked about getting a generator if the power goes out. All those kinds of things to prepare just in case there is some kind of tragedy. You know, it would be better not to use them, but it's better to be prepared and not use them than to need them and not have them. And that's what the point is of Luther's writing this. So Luther historically had been against resistance. And with that was, was the Peasants' Revolt in 1525. Before we started recording, I asked Peter how much he knew of the Peasants' Revolt. And basically, he and I know the same amount, which is that the peasants revolted.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? and and that Luther disagreed, and he he I think in 1525 he disagreed and said that they did not have a suitable cause uh, for the revolt. Um, but you know that's starting to get onto shaky ground for me. Like, let's just go by the the title of it: the peasants revolt. So they revolted. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
0: and so. So he, like I said, he was against resistance. And so th- now we're going to see a change in him because in uh, on June 25th, 1530, and that should be a date all of us as Lutherans remember because that would be the, the signing of the Augsburg Confession and when it was presented to Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Augsburg, but he rejected it. And so later in 1530, It seemed to Luther and the other and the Lutheran princes that Emperor Charles V was looking to join forces to unite with the Roman Catholic Pope and then to come down and squash the Lutheran princes. So in October of 1530, the Lutheran theologians were summoned to Torgau to discuss this. And what I found interesting on this is they were trying to find out these Lutheran princes, if they had the right to resist the emperor, if he came at them and even to do it defensively and even preemptively. And, but they were looking at it two different reasons for, uh, or two different ways legally. And so they asked their lawyers, could they do this? And then scripturally, could they do this? So they asked that other theologians you want to add anything else to that explanation?
1: Um, I think the only other detail that that we need to bring in here a little bit is um, that the Lutherans and the Lutheran princes who were at Augsburg, um, that it was signed by the laymen, the Lutheran princes, as their defense, their legal and theological, oh really that's a cool mug, uh, their legal and theological defense for why they, they have a legitimate reason to exist. Um, and what you'll see when you read through the Augsburg Confession is that very consistently they say this is based on scripture, we are, um, we are objecting to the, the excesses and the impurities in the Roman Catholic Church, um, but what we are doing is in line with the historic practice of the church. And so, with that background, um, because we we tend to divide religion and politics as almost uh, like a wall of separation between the two, um or at least in our heads, <laughs> we do that. And for them, it was one and the same that if a Lutheran prince of his territory, basically the governor of a state, if you think of it like that, the Lutheran prince says this this is a Lutheran territory, and we're going to have Lutheran churches, then that becomes the official religion of the territory even at the same time as that, um, that territory still being part of the Holy Roman Empire. So Charles V is called the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was crowned by the Pope. Um, and so there is this, there is this intermingling of, of religion and politics. Um, and so Charles V, for political reasons, then he goes to talk to the Pope, because the Pope will have spiritual influence as well as political influence so that they can forcibly, potentially, quash this Lutheran rebellion um, and create a forced unity within the Holy Roman Empire so that they can be united against um, the threats from the Turks on the Eastern Front.
0: Right. And so the, the lawyers find that it is legal for the Lutheran princes to... Resist the emperor uh, legally because of their their style of the constitution. Because the princes, the seven princes, were also called electors, and they're called electors for a reason because they elect the emperor. They choose who is going to be over them as uh, as that emperor. And what they talk about is if it would have been say in the time of a Diocletian, you know, one of the the Caesars of Rome, and then he was just, you know, just, uh, you know, like a a king, a tyrant, and it's a family thing, and so forth. Then they may not have legally had the right to do so. That's what they say. They may not have, but because the electors elected the emperor, now they have a reason to resist, and uh, it would be called the it would be called interposition. So what interposition is is where an upper official is trampling upon the constitutional rights of those underneath them, and then a lower official, then a lower official steps in to protect the citizens. So an example of this would be Frederick the Wise. So with Frederick the Wise, uh, and I don't, I don't think Peter, I ever heard growing up when we studied. How uh, Luther, after the Diet of Worms, where he had made his famous speech, after he was told to recant, and he said that I, I will not recant. Uh, here I stand; I can do no other. And then there's really a price on his head. And while he's heading back to Wittenberg, he's kidnapped. Well, he's kidnapped by his elector, by his prince Frederick the Wise, and then taken to Wartburg Castle. That was. Active resistance of the emperor. Like I said, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that was wrong and sinful on Frederick's part. And what the lawyers said, that's interposition. That Frederick said that there's, uh, that what the emperor was doing and putting a bounty on Martin Luther, the monk, that uh, that was wrong. And so he was going to rescue him.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's a very good point. Um, it's kind of interesting to think of it like that. <clears throat> and what it gets to is um, actually related to our gospel lesson from this past Sunday about Jesus giving the keys uh, to his disciples. And, and we talk, you know, in Matthew 16, we talk about carrying out church discipline. And whether it's Frederick the Wise kidnapping Martin Luther when Martin Luther has been declared an outlaw and there is a bounty on his head, or it is a church and a congregation today um, announcing to somebody that, the, that, what, that something is sinful and that they are forfeiting forgiveness through that act, uh, what both cases are doing is saying that there is a, a higher moral code that goes beyond your opinion on this, um, where we, we still have the ability in worldly affairs and in, in secular matters and worldly matters um, we still have some sense of um, personal freedom there. Uh, we're not talking about spiritual matters, but in, in worldly affairs, we do have some matter of personal freedom. And, um, and so it is possible that somebody who has been put in place by God, such as the emperor, um, will have will say and do something that is not only ignorant of what God has said, but also purposefully against um, what is God what is true according to scripture. Um, That's what the emperor was doing when he said that Martin Luther is declared a heretic and he is declared an outlaw. Um, He was saying, you know, basically, this is my opinion about Martin Luther. And he wanted to use his authority improperly um, to try to get Martin Luther. Frederick the Wise says, well, there is a higher moral responsibility Mm -hmm. here that Frederick the Wise has, still has that moral responsibility. He can't just say, you know, um, this is what I was ordered to do, the, the Nuremberg defense, um, that if Frederick the Wise <laughs> wanted to completely obey his emperor, then he would have kidnapped Martin Luther and turned him in. Um, mm-hmm. And he would have, could have used the Nuremberg defense, you know, I was just ordered to do it, I was just following orders. and um, But instead... He says there is a higher moral duty, a higher ethical duty um, before the word of God. And he took it upon himself to disobey his immediate superior in the emperor because he knew of the higher law of God.
0: And so with that, that law of interposition, and we're going to look at that, especially with the uh, the, the Magdeburg Confession in the next chapter. Uh we can apply that to what's going on in our nation right now and in 2020. So I encourage all of you, if you're enjoying these podcasts that that you go and rent the movie, the sheriff, and you have to find it online that there, this is something that I had not learned is the sheriff. We remember like the sheriff of Nottingham was a bad guy with Robin hood and so forth. But after that, His title and his job was changed from working for the king. Now he's working for the people. And so he now, our sheriffs in America, they are now voted by the people. And so with the COVID restrictions in 2020 and why this is timely as Peter and I are recording this at the end of August and we see that it's very likely there's going to be more covid restrictions mandates lockdowns and so so forth coming down uh, in the future to understand the role of say the sheriff because we're going to be discussing you know what what are we going to do when these restrictions and mandates come down for our church and school we're going to be proactive this time last time we had no idea and so we were reactive and most churches i think did not react very well So that's why the whole purpose of the book is let's talk about these things ahead of time so we are prepared and we're all on the same page so we're all united. And one of the things that I plan on doing then is going and talking to our sheriff to say, all right, are we really going to be fined as a church if we stay open? I'll go talk to the the police chief and so forth because I know now in the past tense that I, I looked our sheriff up He was against the COVID restrictions. He would never have fined any church for being opened. And so that's that's that doctrine of interposition that even if a governor or a mayor tells the sheriff what to do, the sheriff doesn't listen to them, doesn't have to, because he's not appointed by a sheriff or a mayor or by a governor or mayor. He is elected by the people. And so he listens to the people.
1: And I think the you know when you talk about this idea of interposition, um, that's where a little bit of you know understanding of the language behind it can be helpful, um, because inter meaning between and position, or he's he's taking the place between the person and the the mandate or the the king or the emperor who is above them, and is that lesser magistrate who comes in between. Uh, the people and whatever edict has been, you know, declared, such as um, Emperor Charles V declaring Martin Luther an outlaw, that was where Frederick the Wise stuck himself in between, which is where his responsibility lay, um, between that unjust command and the victim of that unjust command. Interposition. <laughs> uh,
0: there you go. Good explanation of the word. So that was legally. They could do that. And then theologically, what they, what the Lutheran theologians did is they went back to Romans 13, and there it, they saw that St. Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not say that we are to submit to a ruler. They, we are to submit to governing authorities, plural, that have been established by God. And that these authorities then, they have to follow the own rules of the government. Otherwise, they're the ones who are wrong and disobedient. And I think that's something that we we got wrong uh, the last several years. We, we were kind of in the mindset that whatever the government says, because they're, they're above us as governing authorities established by God, we just have to listen to. We just have to do it. Uh, like you said, the Nuremberg defense. I just have to go along. I've given orders. But what the Lutheran theologians were saying is, no, the the governing authorities, they have to follow the laws of the land too. They have to do what's moral and right for us to follow them because it's good and right. And uh, again, that's what I said before of they're not absolute monarchs that... Uh, The emperor was not an absolute monarch. In the same way here in America, our president when he and our governor or mayors, that's why they can't really make unilateral decisions. They can't keep creating executive orders, even though both presidents, uh, both Biden and Trump, did that an awful lot. The other presidents before them did it, but I don't know if anyone really noticed as much. Trump and Biden did it a lot, and I think... Conservative people were excited when Trump did it, and then they realized, oh, maybe this isn't such a good idea when the first day of Biden's presidency, he just wrote an executive order to undo everything that Trump had ordered. That's why you don't have executive orders. They they have to go through the Congress. Both, both presidents of both parties didn't do that, and neither one was correct.
1: hmm and I think the, the interesting thing about this chapter, especially when we move from what does scripture say to how has this been discussed and applied in the past, is we also notice the shift from, you know, looking at scripture to derive the applications to fl- flipping that around, looking at how has this been applied, and do we see the, the scriptural ideas um, behind this? Um, and that's, I think that's, you know, part of the benefit of church history and that's why all the details matter. Is that looking at history, we can see very specific applications for why this is as it is. Um, but all those details matter, and so when we're talking about the Torgau, the Torgau Declaration, and then a little bit later on the Magdeburg Confession, um, we can make we can make a lot more of a direct connection to their applications and their ideas because um, the way that we have our election setup is actually very similar to Germany in the 16th century, but this would be a completely different discussion if we were living under a dictatorship or an absolute monarchy or something like that, um, where we could still look at the applications from the 16th century Germany. And then we'd have to say, okay, but where is the point of commonality and where are things a little bit different? Um, And that's why, you know, the question, you know, it, that this doesn't sound very Lutheran to to push back or resist on the basis of this when we should just you know jump when an authority says to jump um the idea that you know that this isn't a Lutheran approach or idea was kind of laughable in the light of uh, Lutheran history yeah,
0: exactly and that's something you and I have discussed oftentimes on this podcast. It's a shame for us that we don't know our scriptures. But we all know we don't know our scriptures very well. We don't know our scriptures. But we also don't know history very well, uh, church history and history, and, and then c- uh, civil laws and so forth. If we would know all of these things, we wouldn't follow so blindly as sheep. That we would go and be the watchdogs. But because, uh, and then because there's so many sheep, oftentimes the watchdogs are belittled and so forth and called conspiracy theorists. Uh, but if all of us knew all of this, we go, no, we're not going along with that. Then let's let's look at the Torgau Declaration. I've got two longer sections uh, that I want to read to you. I'll just read the first one. Uh, so this is uh, the Torgau Declaration was the theological position of the Lutherans that was issued in late of October of 1530. Uh, We are in receipt of a memorandum from which we learn that the doctors of law have come to an agreement on the question, in what situations may one resist the government? Since this possibility has now been established by these doctors and experts in the law, and since we certainly are in the kind of situation in which, as they show... Resistance to the government is permissible, and since further we have always taught that one should acknowledge civil laws, submit to them, and respect their authority, inasmuch as the gospel does not militate against civil laws, we cannot invalidate from Scripture the right of men to defend themselves, even against the emperor in person or anyone acting in his name. And now that the situation everywhere has become so dangerous that events may daily make it necessary for men to take immediate measure to protect themselves, not only on the basis of civil law, but on the grounds of duty and distress of conscience, it is fitting for them to arm themselves and to be prepared to defend themselves against the use of force. And such may easily occur to judge by the present pattern and course of events. For in previously teaching that resistance to governmental authorities is altogether forbidden. We were unaware that this right has been granted by the government's own laws, which we have diligently taught are to be obeyed at all times. So notice what they're saying there, that we thought that it was wrong for Christians to resist the government. But they say we were wrong. We didn't realize it was legal for us to do so. So, to that peter you're the constitutional scholar out of the two of us so why is it legal for us in america to resist
1: yeah the the american model of governance is um has a lot of parallels to 16th century germany um and there's a couple of reasons um I mean, part of it is that our, our American model is kind of an outgrowth of the 18th century rationalism um, that we see, especially in France. And this idea that the relationship between the government and the, the governor, say, and the governed is part of a social contract that we have with one another, where they agree to govern well and fairly and justly, and the governed agree to submit to their authority. Um, that's kind of the philosophical background in which um, especially Hamilton and Madison um, put together our, our American Constitution. But the preamble to the U.S. Constitution um, is is very affirmative that this is the right of the people to enter into a contract with, with its government. And that's the way that it's really structured. Um, you know, in order to form, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union to provide for the common defense um, and however the rest of it goes. Um, so that's the, the first thing, is that they have written into our Constitution exactly the, the purpose. Who are, who are the governing authorities and what is the relationship of the people to those governing authorities? That the government is not there by simply the divine right of kings, but rather it is there um, through the consent of the governed. Um, and then on top of that, that the very first amendment to the U.S. Constitution um, is that amendment that I, I saw this in your your study guide um, that you asked, what are the five rights of the uh, of the first? Yeah, amendment. someone asked me to put
0: though someone asked me to put that question in there.
1: That was my that was my only contribution to the whole thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll own that one the rest of it yeah. was was all you um and so when we talk about that we we talk about the the first amendment providing for making provision for uh freedom of speech and in that regard um we've we've got really a second statement of the truth of you know the same relationship that we had in the preamble to the constitution that resistance is um has been recognized multiple times in multiple different cases. Um, resistance is one mode of speech, of, of free speech. To say that um, that such a law is unjust, or that I I agree disagree with it, um, even if it's on you know rather rather shaky ground, um, you can still disagree with it, and a resistance to that law is one aspect of your First Amendment right.
0: Since you mentioned the study guide, for any of you that are interested in it, you can just email me at resistingthedragonsbeast@gmail.com, at and I'll I'll send you both the Word and the PDF document of of that study guide. Because I really encourage you to to have uh, use this uh, use this book for a book club and uh, use it for a Bible study. We're going to be starting a book club uh, here at Water of Life in two or three weeks and uh, getting into each chapter and take as long as you want to to do it. But it is necessary because it was good for us to discuss this in 2020. And as we just said, the same things are going to be happening again. So it's good for us to be proactive on it. And what you were saying then, Peter, uh, I'm going to read one more section. This is not from the Torgal Declaration. It's really from our declaration, the Declaration of Independence. And there, notice what they say is, it is our right, it is even our duty to resist at certain times. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So You just mentioned that. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form, as them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, prudence indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shewn that mankind are more disposed to suffer." While evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, uh, pursuing invariably the same object in vices, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security. So, what they're saying there is most of the time, We're going to suffer. And they're not saying this as Christians, but let's understand there was a more Christian nation than we are now, that we're just used to suffering. God calls us to suffer. This Sunday's gospel, Jesus calls for us to take up our crosses and follow him. The epistle lesson, Paul talks about our suffering as in groaning. So we we are used to suffering, but. When that suffering becomes abusive, especially not so much for us, but for those around us, and we are called upon then to protect our neighbor and our family, then our Declaration of Independence says, just like we instituted this government because we were suffering under British government, if this American government causes us to suffer as citizens, then we have a right to overthrow this government and do something different.
1: Yeah. Anything to add to that? No, that's uh, that's no. pretty much it. And if you, <laughs> okay. if you if you haven't read the Declaration of Independence, um, I mean, obviously they had a couple revisions on the way through, but uh, but Thomas Jefferson is just on fire with this idea for the whole way for the whole way through. Um, and what they're really grasping at is trying to provide a a logical defense and a reasonable defense. Um, for, for their pursuit of independence from Britain at the time. Um, and, and I think it's, it's good to at least read that um, and then to understand that, you know, in its, in its obviously historical context, and understand that in the light of how that eventually shaped the formation of the Constitution um, that was adopted about 10 years later.
0: And then the, the last part that we're going to talk about is that just that last paragraph where it talks about the small Caldic League. So what that is, is those seven princes joined, joined into a military alliance, uh, the small Caldic League, to protect themselves from the Turks, the Muslims to the West, but also then to be prepared to be prepared to protect themselves from the emperor and the pope should they ever ally themselves against the Lutherans. So that's the small Caldic league. And then uh, next time we'll get into Luther's treatise on resistance. So that's the bottom of page 49 and following. So I wanted to share an email I had gotten. This was from a while ago, but uh, it reads, Pastor, I wanted to drop a quick note as I'm working my way through your book as principal of one of the few Wells schools that never had a mask mandate in place. It's nice to see the thoughts that our leadership had shared by someone else. Thank you for taking the time and effort to write this book. I hope others, especially those who kowtow to any and every authority will get the chance to read it as well. So I think that's the first time I've had the word kowtowed in an email.
1: (laughs) In an email.
0: Yeah. But as I was talking with some of our parents, about these ma- these mask mandates and so forth that may be coming upon our school. And we're going to be discussing this very soon. I encourage them then to read this book, but also read one of our Lutheran principal's letters that he had written for his school when the mask mandate, mask mandate was enforced in Milwaukee. He just said, we are not enforcing this that's the government's job it's not our job as teachers and the school to do the government's job and basically they said if you want your child to wear a mask send him to school in a mask but we're not going to enforce it and i think that's the proper way of doing this so Mm -hmm. as we're going to be discussing this hopefully all of you who are listening to this are going to be discussing this in your churches and schools Look for examples of those kinds of things in this book and elsewhere.
1: And, and I think that, you know, that particular circumstance uh, from what you described is, is a fantastic example, is that the issue here isn't whether masks uh, work or don't, whether they're um, of a particular N95 or P100 or just a fabric facial covering, whatever that may be. The issue is one of authority. That the government does not have, first of all, does not have the right to um, compel these religious organizations to enforce their particular laws, except for the laws that apply to that organization. Um, And secondly, that the the responsibility for care of the children rests with the parents. Um, And to at least be aware of that, to think that through and say, um, is this somebody else who is not my child's parent telling me how I as the parent ought to, you know, parent my child. Um, And, and I think that's the, that's the biggest concern for me is um, maybe another time we'll talk about, you know, a little bit later in the book, we'll get into the topic of in local parentis, um, which is, you know, when you register your child for a school that you authorize the school to act in the place of a parent in local parentis. Um, And, with the with the mandate upon a school that is not a public school, that gets into the question of asking these the school to enforce something that is not legally theirs to enforce, and that's the that's the point of distinction. Um, totally aside from the question of what your mask, you know, what design is on your mask,
0: right? And and with that too, I had a long discussion uh, with a family young couple. Uh, with with their child of the child is still an infant, but they're looking ahead at what about vaccines and so forth, because they have been listening to different people doing a lot of research on vaccines and just wondering, you know, what, what are Lutheran schools? What are private schools do uh, with vaccines? Because uh, it, you guys can, everyone can, feel how they want on masks and vaccines and so forth. But this family you know, was really against the vaccines and in general, and then uh, concerned because public schools aren't going to let children in that don't, that aren't up to date on their vaccines. And even, and, you know, they're looking at different kinds of doctors and so forth, because certain doctors are saying, well, you're not going to be your patient if you're not going to let us vac- vaccinate your child. So all of those things, like you said, Peter, we need to understand that the doctors, the government officials, the teachers, the schools, they don't have authority over our children or our bodies or our children's bodies. That's our responsibility the fourth commandment we need to take that authority back and that's really what we're talking about in a lot of this book is that uh we've said it before we give to caesar what is caesar's but if it doesn't belong to caesar's it's to caesar we don't give it to caesar so all right we'll wrap it up there and then we'll see you next week as we get more into luther's letter of his warning to his dear german people